Today's scripture reading is from Amos 5:18 through 27. Please read with me the verses in bold. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We always talk at Grace Sacramento about worship and the liturgy being the work of the people. Um, but it is uh, really incredible uh, to see how many different people and how many kinds of people make up the body of Christ. It's really helpful for me to remember uh, that not everybody thinks linearly, um, that uh, information can be processed artistically, and I hope uh, that someone that you see helping lead worship this morning, whether uh, they've made art or they're working some electronics in the back or playing an instrument or working with kids, uh, helps you remember and believe that there is a place uh, in the body of Christ for you. And uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Sacramento, and we're glad that you're here. And um, if it's your first time here, as has already been said, we're in a sermon series called Divine Intervention, a sermon series on the minor prophets, which may go down in history as the most uncomfortable sermon series we've ever preached. I think God designed it that way. So I'm going to start like this. Be honest. And I don't know if uh, everyone is willing to be honest in church, but... Be honest, how many of you can remember a sermon preached on the book of Amos? All right, okay. How many, of, how many in the room have ever been in a small group Bible study or done a Bible study on the book of Amos? Okay, a few more. Good, how many of you would say that it's possible that you've never actually read the book of Amos? Be honest, you can be honest and yep, it's okay, right? Uh, we're getting deep now. How many of you didn't realize that there was a book in the Bible called Amos? <laughs> you just thought it was a Zitzman boy. <laughs> well, it's okay. It's okay. You're going to hear about him today. And... Um, you're not alone because when Amos showed up 
in the, this moment in the Old Testament, nobody then had ever heard of him either. In fact, the first verses in the book of Amos uh, tell us that when Amos showed up on the scene, and we can date him pretty good because of the first verse, it's probably 750 before Christ, um, nobody had ever heard of him. Amos 1.1 tells us that he was a shepherd from Tekoa, a, a blue-collar guy from an out-of-the-way out place who showed up out of the blue with an incredibly convicting confrontation with the people of Israel. Okay, more questions. Be honest. And I'm looking at some of you knowing if you're lying. How many of you can remember 2008? Okay, right? How many of, there are, so of the people who can remember 2008, be honest if you feel comfortable, how many of you lost your job or saw your retirement go up in smoke or had a house or a mortgage get foreclosed or knew somebody in the, in the period of years soon after 2008 who went through difficult or terrible tri financial straits, right? It's the for, for the youngins in the room, there was a few years starting in 2008 we called the Great Recession and strange things happened and a lot of people were, ha saw hard times and lost money they thought was secure. And uh, the point is, a lot can change in a decade or two. You realize that's not two decades ago. And when uh, Amish shows up on the scene, uh, there is a lot going on in this moment in 750 B.C. Uh, fortunes can be made and lost, right, in just a couple of decades. And when Amos 1.1 tells us that Amos delivered these words to Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel, biblical history tells us that the Jewish people in this moment, they're just a few generations away from a moment when God's chosen people had fractured into two kingdoms. Judah to the south where Jerusalem was and Israel to the north. And when Amos shows up to talk to the people of Israel in this northern kingdom, uh, they have just gone through a pretty incredible couple of generations. Um, the initial decades after that northern kingdom split from Judah were marked by economic hardship military strife. This northern kingdom was under the thumb of a world power called the Syrian Empire. But by the time Jeroboam is king of Israel, the moment that Amos shows up on the scene, that Syrian Empire has fallen, and the northern kingdom is enjoying a period of unprecedented economic success. People are doing really well. There's wealth, there's time for leisure, it's hard to remember just a few decades ago how hard things were. A lot can change in just a couple of generations. Fortunes can be made. And it was generally the opinion of the people in Israel that this was because God was pleased with them. This was not Amos' opinion. And that's probably why Amos is so unpopular. It might be why you've never heard a sermon on the book of Amos, because uh, it's only nine chapters long. Um, it's hard to find. It's just a little book, and it's buried in the middle of the end of the Old Testament. 
but it's more, it's, it's more likely that you've never been taught about Amos, not because he's hard to find or because he's little, but because Amos speaks powerfully against comfortable religiosity and especially powerfully against those who publicly p- practice religion while privately benefiting from systems that favor the affluent and the powerful and fail to confront injustice or care for the poor. Amos is unpopular because it's precarious to read as an affluent Christian. Amos is a staged intervention for people living in comfort or in the comfort of what Pastor Jack Miller calls a religious cushion, uh, a religion that is designed to reassure themselves that they're all right just the way things are. Now, while we don't have any indication that Amos really had any formal education or training in law, this shepherd from Tekoa, some far-off place, shows up, and, and his book is designed as a series of indictments against uh, the leaders of Israel for their empty religion, for their unattention to injustice, and uh, for how they practiced a, a worship that served their own self-approval and was co-opted by their own uh, political agendas, their own social status. Amos is actually a masterful communicator. We don't know where, much about him or where he got this from, but in the beginning of the book, he sort of endears himself to his listeners and then slowly uh, draws a net around them and pulls it tight. Let me show you uh, what I'm talking about. The story goes that there was once a little old church lady, and she was invited to a big tent revival that was coming to her city and told that the traveling evangelist would be preaching about sin. And she said, all right. She showed up on the first night, and she was excited, and the, the... the topic of his message was that he was, uh, was going to preach against substance abuse and drunkenness. And as he preached that message, she stood up and she said, preach it, brother. The second night, she came to the tent and was told that this night he was going to stand up and preach against and denounce promiscuity and sexual immorality. And as he began to preach, she stood up with both hands and said, Amen. But on the third night, as he began his third sermon, condemning gossip, she leaned over to the person next to her and said, now he's not preaching, he's just meddling. (laughs) Look at what Amos does in the first two chapters as he speaks to the listeners in Israel. He's going to speak to the northern kingdom of God's people who are self-satisfied, thinking that God must be pleased with them and with their religion because it's working, because they're experiencing such prosperity. I'm going to try to do this with a little help uh, from my friend in the, in the PowerPoint. Amos 1, 3 to 5, uh, Amos opens up and he begins by condemning the pagan nations that surround Israel. So in Amos 1, 3, he says, the Lord Uh, For three transgressions of Damascus, for four I will not revoke punishment. And then he he calls out this pagan nation, Damascus, for its cruelty and its atrocities that they've committed in war. 
Amen. There's Damascus, right? In Amos 6 to 8, he confronts Gaza, which is now not in the northeast where Damascus was, but in the southwest, and he condemns them for their human trafficking and enriching themselves through other people's suffering. Hallelujah. In Amos 1, 9 to 12, he confronts Tyre, which is to the northwest, and Edom, which is to the southeast, confronting Tyre for for deporting people for profit, profit and Edom for betraying uh, familial promises and seeking retribution. Preach it. You can hear Israel getting involved. Yeah, stick it to them. Amos 1.13 to 2.3 confronts Ammon and Moab, the countries to the west. They're confronted for their violence and cruelty towards the helpless and the desecration of the past. Come on now. And then finally, he closes in. He even confronts Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people. And he condemns them because, he calls them out because they've rejected God's word. And now they're even saying, yeah, even Judah. And we're no different. It's so easy to see and point fingers with God at the the culture around, say, look at this godless world that we live in, or look at those churches over there that have no concept of a, a biblical marriage or sexual purity, and oh, but they point back and say, look at those churches who are so preoccupied with purity that they're not paying attention to the homeless or the orphan or the widow. Do you see what Amos has done? He's been circling Israel and tightening his net. They're trapped. And then he says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, for four, I will not revoke punishment. Now he's meddling. And for the rest of the book, everybody else got two, two verses or a paragraph. But for the rest of the book, specifically the next nine verses, he describes a lurid picture of religious people in Israel of sexual immorality in places that were dedicated to the worship of God. Immorality happening in the comfort of objects extorted from the poor while toasting their success with wine dishonestly acquired in corrupt legal dealings. His net tightens around Israel, and it seems like no matter which side of the aisle you're on, you're in it. Amos has come to indict of people who are full of religion, but dead in faith. And if it's not indicting to us, we're not paying attention. Maybe our faith is more dead than we realize. How does dead religion kill real faith? If you are into crime podcasts or uh, detective thrillers, maybe you will go home tonight and binge on Netflix on old CSI episodes. If any of those things describe you, then you know that a good, uh, there's nothing like a good old-fashioned autopsy to reveal a cause of death. So this morning, I want to read the passage that we were given. And again, I just want to tip my hat to uh, Daniel and to Stephen Mockford, who have already attempted to preach a whole minor prophet in a half an hour. This is no joke. Um, but we're going to look at Amos chapter 5, 18 to 27 this morning. I think it embodies many of the reoccurring themes in the book of Amos. And I'm going to uh, point out how it shows us Amos's autopsy of a dead faith. 
he begins uh, with a wake-up call. Amos 5, 18 to 20, uh, he, Amos echoes the book of Joel, which we heard about from Stephen Mockford last week, uh, the, this day of the Lord that is coming when God uh, will confront his people, and he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. Uh, Amos is saying to Israel, you might not be as ready to meet your maker on the day of the Lord as you think you are. Being dutifully religious does not mean you actually know God. It's entirely possible. In fact, it's common. It was common then, and it's common now to be regularly religious and have a dead or non-existent faith. To be actually not even a believer in God. And it's also true that uh, be, it's also true that we have a tendency as humans to lean on our pedigree or believe that that says something, right? To be born into the Orthodox tradition or to grow up in the, in the PCA church actually isn't the same as having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Israel was betting far too much on being born Jewish, and so the first thing that we see in Amos's autopsy is that a dead faith is often characterized by a misled confidence in hard work in religion or in heritage. And he says, beware. Beware of the day of the Lord because where you've put your confidence is actually not in the Lord. In, in verse 22, he says, uh, though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. There's actually a glaring omission here in the description of the kind of offerings that, uh, that Israel offers in their worship. There is an offering instructed by God in the Old Testament that is nowhere to be found in Israel's worship in the book of Amos, and it's a sin offering. It's a, an offering for atonement and for the forgiveness of sin, and they don't, they're not doing it. It's clear throughout Amos that it's missing from their religious practice, from their fervent worship uh, in, in the worship of Israel in the northern kingdom. And it, the, the second uh, symptom in, in Amos's autopsy is that in a dead faith, there's no acknowledgement of personal sin. This should sound familiar uh, to us. We... We are familiar with worship that talks about unhealth, that worship services and messages that talk about brokenness, that talk about self-improvement, but that don't talk about sin. We've been places and read things and heard podcasts and been to worship services that works hard, actually, to explain why some of the things that the Scripture calls sin are not actually sin. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so we need to get ourselves in that category. We need to understand that this, the, the good news is not that we can avoid sin necessarily, but that God has done something on our behalf for us in the person of Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.5 says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If we explain away sin, if we ref refuse to acknowledge that we're sinners, then we're automatically making our worship and our religion about us and not about what God has done. We are 
making worship about making ourselves honorable or proving ourselves to be charitable or good, etc. The whole thing, the gospel, is not about us. It's about God and his incredible mercy and love in spite of our sin because we're sinners. Timothy goes on to say that uh, he received mercy for this reason, that as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ displays his mercy in his forgiveness for us when we put our faith in him, and that that's an example for others to see and believe and receive eternal life. If we miss that, we're missing the core of the gospel. And so a dead faith is a faith that uh, is overconfident, has misled confidence in, in religion and work or in, in heritage. It's also a place where there's no acknowledgement of personal sin. Verse 23 and 24 said, Amos, uh, Amos says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. Uh, it is true that the church will always exist in a world where there is corruption. Because we exist in a sinful world, um, it's why we're here proclaiming good news, because a broken, sinful world needs to hear that God has done something. It's why Jesus came, and it's why we must be a place where there's care for orphans and widows and immigrants and receiving of uh, sinners and tax collectors. But as much as we'd like to believe that if the church got it right, then there would be no more suffering in the world, we don't expect that kind of restoration to happen until Christ's return. Jesus said, that the poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me. And so when we talk about the existence of corruption in the church, when, uh, when Amos 1 and 2, which we read this morning, uh, as he uh, c confronts sin, as he paints a picture of worshipers of God in Israel, he's not painting a picture of a church that exists in a world where there is corruption. He's actually painting a picture of worshipers who are as comfortable and complicit in corruption and injustice as the pagan nations that surround them. Amos is a cautionary tale about how quickly we depart from the heart of worship when we start to conflate material prosperity or nationalistic pride or political influence with God's blessing and his pleasure. History is full of examples of the Christian church's blessing and participating in bloody crusades, colonization, segregation, the cover-up of abuse, and it's all been done in the name of protecting the power or the influence or the prosperity or the position that people had come to believe was apparently a sign of God's pleasure. We, we must be God's favorite because of these things, and so we protect these things instead of seeking God's face. And so a dead faith is a faith that coexists comfortably with corruption. In fact, in collaboration with it. Finally, in verse 25 and 26, he says, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O Israel? You shall take up 
Sekuth, your king, and Kuyan, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. In this sort of odd conclusion of our passage this morning, Amos recalls for the Israelites uh, that they were desperately dependent on the Lord when they were a part of a people in exile, as he was rescuing them from slavery and leading them through the desert to a promised land, they didn't have all of this religious kuchman. But they, if they were hungry, they had to desperately seek God and he would provide. If they were thirsty, they had to seek God's face and see how he would provide for them. And, uh, and Amos compares that sort of worship, that sort of desperate seeking of God's face to all the busyness of their new religious tradition and ritual. And he seems to be saying that they might as well be worshiping the pagan gods like Sukkoth or doing astrology with, uh, with Kiyun because what they're doing has everything to do with themselves and nothing to do with dependence, with seeking God's face. Every time we do uh, elder training at Grace Sacramento, we ask our elder candidates to read this old book. It's called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church by Jack Miller. To like get out of print copies on Amazon resellers. And in that book, Jack Miller says that the church was intended by Jesus to be a gathering of people full of faith, seeking God's face together, but far too often, it becomes a religious cushion. That's his word. A gathering of religious folks desperately in need of reassurance. Miller goes on to describe different varieties of religious cushions in the midst of Christianity. He says, in its liberal variety, its primary concern is to comfort suburbanites with the inclusive vision of a God who is too decent to send nice people like them to hell. In its Catholic or sacramental form, its purpose is to tranquilize the guilt-ridden person with the religious warmth of its liturgy. And among conservatives and, v and evangelicals, its primary mission all too often is to function as a preaching station where Christians gather to hear the gospel preached to the unconverted and to be reassured that the liberals are mistaken about God and hell and to renew one's sense of well-being without having to have a serious encounter with the living God. Let's say Amos's autopsy of a dead faith is that a dead faith is overconfident in work, misled confidence in work and in heritage, uh, no acknowledgement of personal sin coexists comfortably with corruption and is a place where God's face is not being sought. Dead faith, this sort of description of church is almost certainly one of the major factors in the fact that statistics tell us that so many people are leaving the Christian church right now. It's also dead faith and empty religion are also threatening to distract the people who are in the room from God and drown out the gospel. And after a sermon like this, you might think, or might be tempted to think, times have never been worse. But there's good news. They have been. <laughs> or at least it's bad. 
There's probably never been a period or place in history where religion was more carefully developed or more thoroughly adhered to, to the detriment of a living faith than by the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' time. They were so blinded by their commitment to keep the law at any cost that they not only failed to recognize the Messiah that their law had foretold, but they figured out a way to have him murdered and carry out their religious duties all at the same time. A trial outside of Pilate's palace meant that they could remain ritually clean and participate in the Passover. A crucifixion completed by noon on Friday meant everyone could be home in time for the Sabbath. But then, in the midst of that corruption, right in the middle of their intention, God was authoring our salvation. Jesus Christ, the perfect sin offering, was not omitted, but offered up, died in our place in that moment that dead religion seemed to have finally done away with God for good, he saved us. Offering us personal forgiveness from God through faith in Christ. Offering us the hope of a day without corruption when Christ returns and makes all things right. Painting a picture of the face of God for us to see Christ in the flesh, God in person, the love of God personified for us in Jesus Christ in his life and his death on the cross and his resurrected life. Uh, Jesus said, unless a seed is buried and dies, it cannot grow into new life. And in that very moment when it looked like dead religion had buried God forever, Christ returned. My friends, uh, while there is much to be convicted about when confronted with the book of Amos, certainly as affluent Christians in the Western world in the 21st century, there is a lot for us to chew on in this book. And yet we won't find our way out of Amos's indictment by hard work, or by uh, resolution, we will find our way out by confession and forgiveness and reliance on Christ. This is the message that we have for the world. <laughs>